The Silly Goose Gang Podcast. And here we are, episode 39 of the Silly Goose Gang. And we are joined tonight uh, by Mark Ormod. So, Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to join us this evening. Thank you for inviting me, lads. Um, it's a pleasure. And sorry about the previous diary conflicts leading up to this point. It's taken us a couple of weeks, but we finally got here. Absolutely. That's, that, 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 <clears throat> it's, uh, it's fine. I, I spend most of my life getting rejected, but it's usually by women, not hairy men. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons I actually reached out to you, Mark, was I'd, I'd listened to um, the podcast you did with uh, Jason Fox on his uh, Wild Tales uh-huh. podcast and listened to your story. And I knew a lot about you. I sound like a weirdo here, but I followed you for a while on Instagram um, and heard a bit more about your story and thought, I'd love to have you on and, and hear you the story. And as I say, one of the things I noticed when you were talking to, to Jason is you, you just briefly touched on jujitsu. But because Jason doesn't really train, it kind of shortened. And I had a feel when I heard that you, I could hear it in the voice that you were quite passionate about jujitsu. Um, yeah. And obviously, as we were saying off camera, you know, we're all lowly blue belts. So we're going to get into some jujitsu chat as well as we go through the through the course of this podcast. And we'll we'll, we'll talk some jujitsu. So we'll bore probably 90% of people, but at least the three of us will have fun talking. <laughs> Did you pick up on the trepidation in Fox's voice when I invited him down to row? I did. Yeah, <laughs> big tough guy, big SAS who dares win. I say, come down for a roll. Yeah, I'm busy, mate. I got a book signing that day. <laughs> I heard that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's we, we've always said that about jujitsu. The, the amount of people that, and obviously taking aside, you know, with Foxy being, you know, special forces, but so many people think they can fight when they cannot. Oh, absolutely. And, and you put them on the mats, and all those guys that watch the UFC and say, Fuck that, I'd just stand yeah. up. That wouldn't work on me. And then suddenly they're the geese wrapped around their neck or you're rear naked or whatever it might be, and they're tapping and panicking and it's yeah. just a different a different animal, isn't it? Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. I know um I, I came from I was one of those fucking idiots in the beginning who came from a boxing background and uh didn't believe that anybody could take me down. You know, you shit's not gonna work on me. Yeah. And, uh, our professor Dan, uh, uh, it was more embarrassing because he was actually naked at the time. He was <laughs> butt naked, and uh, he fucked me up. He tied me up in knots, and I was going, "What in the fuck is this shit?" Yeah. And uh, yeah, then you know, I realised some point I, I had, you know, how vulnerable you are to those things, and uh, had to get involved. And now it's uh, addictive. So yeah, and yeah, obviously that's good because I get to fuck up Ali regularly. <laughs> um so that's always that's always good fun um <laughs> but yeah so what so are you, are you involved with the, the is it reorg is that the right reorg the, right reorg okay so the, that's the military but is that because that must be quite a new thing within the military is it, it so it's not it's not within the military or without the military um right okay so it was started by a guy you know i, was on, I just said to you i was on the phone to him before we we came on right, here right 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 uh, his name is Sam Sheriff. He is currently still serving. He's in his last, I think, seven or eight months of service, and he would have done 22 years. Um, he's a physical training instructor in the Royal Marines. He is the head of unarmed combat in the Royal Marines. He is a black belt as of last year in BJJ, and he's the founder of Reorg. Ah, okay. It, it started... Um, obviously, he had, he had a huge passion for it. He spent, 
you know, well over a decade, just putting in the hours, competing, traveling, you know, and, and you can't say Sam Sheriff and, and Jiu Jitsu in two separate sentences that they are one and the same, you know, and he had this passion for it and he understood the deeper level of it about what it does and how it adds value outside of the dojo as well as it does in. Yeah. And so, you know, guys like me coming back, having lost limbs and guys suffering mental trauma. And he knew that jujitsu could be beneficial for them mentally and physically. So he started taking guys on, um, training with guys, you know, introducing them to jujitsu or sometimes reintroducing them after a traumatic <clears throat> the mats. And it's just been, the, the growth of it's been phenomenal. You know, mm. I mean, I'm happy to tell you the story of how we met. Um, yeah, on you go. Yes, yeah, so from my background, before I was injured, before I lost my legs, I, from about the age of 13, used to train and compete in full contact kickboxing, Muay Thai, and then in the Marines, I boxed at heavyweight. Oh, okay. When I lost my legs, I, I thought that part of my life was over for good. And, and it was hard for me to take, you know. I, I knew I could still lift weights or, or do cardio and work out because that was important to me. But martial arts had been in my life since I was about <clears> five years old. And uh, during my recovery and my rehab, I had several people approach me from different disciplines. Uh, I think it was karate and taekwondo and potentially one other. And they all told me that I could still train I could potentially compete and I could work my up to black belt. Now, I dabbled in all of these as a teenager or as a young kid, as you do. You go from one to the other trying to figure out what works. And I just knew that they couldn't do that. You know, I knew I don't have legs, so I can't kick. I've only got one hand, so I can't do the punching. I can't do the – I know in karate they do the the kata, you know, mm. the kind of – I don't want to disrespect it say the dancey sort of thing, but you know what I mean? That, that kind of stuff. And I knew I couldn't do that. So I kind of just brushed it off. And then one day I was uh, I was on camp. I was in the sergeant's mess at Royal Marines headquarters down here in Plymouth. And Sam approached me, introduced himself and said, would I like to come and train jiu-jitsu? Now, initially, I just thought, oh, here we go. Here comes another one. He's going to promise me you can do this and you can do that. And it's going to be a washout. Because when I was a kid, one of the martial arts I dabbled in was jiu-jitsu. But I didn't know... There was a difference between traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So I thought back to when I used to run and jump over people and roll and break fall and shoulder throw people. And I just thought, it's another guy <clears throat> promised me to do this and he's not going to be able to deliver. But he's a Royal Marine, he's a physical training instructor. I'm going to go down and see what it's about. And I went down there and that first session, you know, when I realized this is ground fighting. So and he showed me that you know this is an arm bar mark this is what you do here now let's figure out how you can do it and i can adapt mm -hmm. anything so obviously there are some things i can't do but 80 percent of what he was showing me on that first day i could adapt to me to suit me you know rolling with one arm and i, and I came out of it and, and i'll be honest i was fucked my head i felt like i was going to throw up because my body wasn't used to rolling around backwards and forwards and upside down. And I thought I was going to yap everywhere. And, you know, I felt like shit. But I was like, 
straight away, like, there's something here. I can build on this. This mm. guy training me. I can build on this. And that was it. From then on, I was like, right, I'm going to learn this. And I am going to take myself on merit, not on sympathy, from a yeah. white to a black belt. And I'm going to work my ass off and I'm going to show people, you know, that I can do this based on hard work, discipline and mat time. You know, and that's the journey that I'm on now. That's, um, I, I guess that would be, <laughs> um, you know, as a lifelong martial artist, the... You know, you don't want a belt on pay. You want to get the belt because you're fucking good. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a that, you know, a, you know, that's that's a that's a cool thing to hear because you know, uh, you know, there's a, a, you know, as you as you've just said, there's you know, there's a few martial arts where you can get a black belt within several years, and you go, this is fucking bullshit. There's none of that mm. in jiu-jitsu. You know, you're not getting a you're not getting a black belt in three years. It's just not. I don't want to. No, you know, yeah, I think, and and as well as. Um, so our our professor um, wouldn't give me a blue belt until I'd competed it, until I competed a white belt. As it turned out, somebody broke my ribs. I couldn't compete, and uh, he ended up having to give me it because I was you know way better than white belts. But even he was like, you know, I want you to compete. I'm not just going to give you a belt. I want you to prove yourself. And because he's a bit of an asshole and he wants me to make me do these things, but uh, yeah, he wouldn't give it to me personally. He's like, no, I want you to prove yourself. So yeah, and that, like as you say, I don't you know. Um, I don't. I don't like you know, getting anything easy. So it's, 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 you know, it's cool to hear you say that as well. You, you really want to earn it. Um, so yeah, that's cool. One thing I just wanted to pull you back on is, you know, you said you boxed at heavyweight. Um, mm. So I had sparred. I think I've got the medal over there. I, I sparred the army team because the army team used to come up to Scotland before the combined services. And one year I was in, I was, you know, in the Scotland setup, so I went to spar. So, um, yeah, I sparred with, I, you know, I boxed the heavyweight as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sparred with Alex Mansfield. Um, and then I didn't spar with, but you know, Frank isn't ready. No, I'm not a big fan, I just did it so I get time off work. Well, those guys, <laughs> those guys were so, they were so, they were, they were so nice. You know, I was speaking to all the big guys, there was a, you know, a few you know, 81s to super heavyweights. And they were all super cool. And they were just saying, um, like, we'd never get deployed. We just train like professional fighters and we get to do shit like this and go and do things. I'm like, that sounds awesome. Um, I was too old, but yeah, it sounded like, um, I just didn't know if you knew any of those guys, but no, um, yeah, quite, it's cool that you did that as well. You, you know, these, because the Royal Marines are so small, that this happens to us in all our sports. So in mm. boxing, we basically got told, lads, you've got five weeks and then you're competing. Whereas yeah. those boys, they've got that, they wear a track suit their whole career. It's like every year we have an Army Navy rugby game. Yeah. Hey, rugby in the Army, that's all you do. In the Marines, they come together about four weeks before, they're all shit faced and they're like, right, we better start training. And you know, because we got jobs <laughs> we, and we, we ditch the track suit after and go back into uniform. Yeah. But, Different um, animals, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, talking about with the blue belt about competing so I my mentality was I don't want to get a blue belt until I've competed at least once Mm. and obviously it's more difficult for me because I'm not in it to be like I don't want to compete against able-bodied people like I'm I'm some bloke with a chip on his shoulder who's got something to prove Mm. I compete against other disabled athletes you know, on the same level as me, triple amputees, double amputees, whatever it is, and full on go for it. And um, 
my, my whole plan was to get that one competition under my belt as a, a four-stripe white belt before I got promoted. Mm. And I was lining it all up, right? And I was looking, and there was a competition in Manchester. And, and I was going to have to go against an able-bodied guy, but, you know, my, my options were limited. And then just before I did, I got promoted. So it was, uh -huh. it, it was bittersweet. I was like, no, don't give it to me yet. Don't give it to me yet. <laughs> give me like three months so I can go compete. And then as it happened, training for that fight, I broke my femur. I got slammed on the end of my right leg and broke my femur <laughs> and ended up unable to compete. So... Uh, fuck. Yeah. But yeah, that's cool. It's, um, is, there, is there many other guys? Is there many other amputees training? Like I can't, you know, it's hard enough to get um you know matchups you know just you know like i'm 100 kilos just now a blue belt so white belts there seems to be loads of competitions and then once you start to get belts there seems to be less and less but i assume the pool is going to be way smaller for you know amputees yeah and we started looking out in abu dhabi um and every i think it's every april they have a para jiu-jitsu tournament out there oh okay so that's potentially what we're going to look at Problem being, you know, and, and I know before we went on air, you said we're going to talk about the Invictus Games. So one of the issues that I've found with that, the same as with the Invictus Games and any other kind of para sports, is I have a high level of disability. So you mm. imagine, you know, you've got people that do jiu-jitsu and they want to compete. Then you've got disabled people that do it when they compete. Then you've got triple amputees that do it that want to compete. And the pool's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And there's yeah, no way out there. You know? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, I think um, it'd be cool if, uh, you know, through Reorg, you know, if they could sort something out within the UK, like, like if there's a way to do it. Um, there must be, I know for a fact that there will be people out there, you know, in a similar position to you going, I fucking love to compete, but there will be people out there 100%. But, you know, it's going to have to take someday uh to to pull it all together uh that'd be super cool um whether that's yeah whether they could do something like that through reorg and you know reach out to you know every jiu-jitsu club i'm sure there's something that could be sorted out but that'd be that'd be pretty awesome um because yeah. like you see yeah it'd be cool I, I guess i don't know if um like i don't know how i would feel competing you know if i you know there's a competition it's like oh this guy's an amputee like i don't know how it would play in my head but you'd be like oh should i take pity on this you know should i take pity on this guy and then i go and and then he fucks me up because I'm not taking it seriously. Or do you know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where you, do you know, do you this, know what I mean? This, so this was my point about not wanting to compete against able-bodied people. I saw a video a long time ago of a guy who was a quadruple amputee mm. uh, having a cage fight, right, against an able-bodied guy. Now there's, there's only so much you can tell from a video. He, he could have been really good, but the guy had no hands, no feet. He couldn't get hooks in grip or anything like that. So as an able-bodied person, if it was me. I'll just run across the ring and kick him like a football. Like you said, the able-bodied person is going to be like, I don't really want to hurt this guy because it's not really fair. And I don't want to be the man that's fucked up the injured guy. So it's like, are you going to give it 110% or are you going to pity me? Yeah. Which is why yeah. I'd rather fight other disabled yeah. people. And then you could really, and then you could really go at it, and then you could go, no, I fucked him up on merit. Exactly. Um, yeah, I know. I, um, it's not, I know it's not, it's not a disability, but I, I, uh, I boxed once um, 
it was Eastern District Championships in Scotland, and the guy was really fat. He was really fat, and um, you know, for some reason, you know, my club entered me at super heavyweight, so I was a heavyweight fighting this really fat guy. And before that, I went, I'm going to, I'm going to beat the shit out of him. He's the fittest man. You know, um, he's actually a good friend now, Davey Patterson. Really guy, really nice guy, but he was 115 kilos. He really should have been like 85 kilos. And he was the fittest man I've ever boxed. Yeah. His cardio was unbelievable. And I went into the ring going, I've already won. This is done. And then the third round, and he's still throwing punches. And I'm going, what the fuck? <laughs> so uh, it's that thing where you, if you go into you go into a, a, a you know a, a competition with that attitude, you will lose. Um, so yeah, um, just one of the things. Yeah. One of one of the things you touched on, Mark, with reorg was about the the sort of rehabilitation of the mind, I guess, and how important that's mm. been with the jujitsu. And I know certainly not in similar level, but I've seen it and Chris has seen it as well. My uh, now seventeen year old son does jujitsu with us as well. And he had a lot of struggles growing up as a young teen, as a lot of teenage guys do. And it was actually, I just realised this morning, thanks to the beauty of Facebook, that it was three years ago today we first stepped on the mats together. And I've seen how much that's improved him as a teenager, given him that confidence, brought him out of shell. How much of an impact was that for you when you came back from your injuries to be able to compete on the mats and being able to actually, you know... Yeah. You know, learn. So it's like, a, it's like a, a, thought you could do. It's like a brotherhood, right? So, like military is kind of like a like a you know, it's a brotherhood. Everybody's kind of friends, and then jujitsu is very similar yeah. in terms of it should be similar in terms of you know everybody's got your back and wants to help you, and everybody's looking out for you, kind of thing. Yeah, I um, mean, you got to try and you got to try and imagine it, right? So, my whole life growing up, you know, I, I trained and and I fought competitively in the ring like all over the country fighting when i was i was quite a big kid so when i was like 16 i was fighting and beating 33 year old men so, okay. so then i go and join the royal marines and i managed to earn a green beret which has got all this prestige around it i go to war when i'm 19 in iraq i go to war when i'm 24. my whole identity to that age is wrapped around being quote unquote a warrior yeah and you get whacked and you lose your limbs and, you know, you can do a little bit of work in the gym and still get your heart rate up and, and feel a little bit of testosterone flowing. But really, you just want a, a, a scrap, you know, yeah. every once in a while. And so when I did jujitsu that first time I came off that mat, I'm like, fuck it, I'm still in the game. I can still do this. I can still be that man that I've grown up to be. And that, in my mind, is my identity. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I, don't, I, I won't go too far down a rabbit hole but I, you know certificates up there i've trained as a bodyguard i spent six years working as a nightclub doorman that was all what i was about you know what i mean mm -hmm. just yeah trying to better myself all the time in that those disciplines and uh when you think it's taken away from you it's hard it's really yeah. hard to accept it and i tried to pivot this way and that way and you know but nothing nothing really stacked up not even the invictus games i was just like i need something where i can get into combat with another bloke one-on-one -on -one and see yeah. either let him whip my ass and me survive it or me beat him yeah that makes that makes uh complete sense i mean uh you know i know, I know a lot of guys who come from you know amateur boxing and, and once he's you know you know gets to the stage where somebody you know they're just done they just can't do it anymore you know that it's just they're, they're done and it's 
you see people even at that level, you know, nothing wrong with them. They just finished in terms of boxing, and they they kind of go down a bad way. They put weight on, start drinking, and you fuck. And you know, I was keen. One of the things I I realised quite early on is I've seen a lot of these guys who had boxed, and then you know the career's done, and they just they leave the sport, you know, get drunk, end up in pub fights and all that kind of shit. Um, and I never wanted to be one of those guys. So I always did some, you know, marathons, triathlons, whatever. But then I essentially fell into jiu-jitsu. So I never had that kind of lull. I, I, like you're saying, I like competition. I like fucking fight. I like, you know, like a fight. Um, so I was lucky. But you see guys who just fall out of a sport. And then it's like they don't, their entire, like, as you say, their entire identity has been a fighter. And once you take the fighter away from them, they just go, what the fuck? Yeah, what What am I? Mm-hmm. Um, so it must be, you know, that times fucking a thousand for you. Yeah. Um, you know, coming out, you know, you're with your, uh, you know, you call it accident, incident, whatever you want to call it in the, in the army. But uh, yeah, so it must be, you know, a, a lot harder mentally when you think that's gone. Yeah. But to find the, you know, the jiu-jitsu thing is really cool. Um, yeah, it's uh, such a, a, a cool sport, but so you, so like the Invictus Games. How does that does that? How like at what point does Invictus Games happen for you? Like in terms of you know, did it happen at the same time as Jiu Jitsu? And like when when did that come in? So I was actually sat here right where I am right now. On um, it was December two thousand sixteen. And I'll, this is my home office where I am now. I'll come in and I'll start sketching out my goals for the following year. So mm-hmm. it'll be like health and fitness, business, family, you know, and I'll start putting these subheadings in and then I'll sketch out all of my goals. And I got halfway through the process and then I realized that 2017, because I was blown up on Christmas Eve 2007, mm-hmm. that Christmas Eve 2017 was 10 years since I've been injured. So I thought, well, why don't I do something this year that I've not done before in celebration of, of 10 years of life? Okay. So I literally sat here in this chair and I closed my eyes and I just started thinking, what haven't I done? What haven't I done in this decade that I could do that is going to mark this occasion and also what I like to do, you know, push myself forward and, and grow? And I realized that I'd not done any sport. Nothing. I, I had I had got a job. I worked full time with the Royal Marines charity. Been doing that for ten years. Had more children. Got a house. Um, got everything else I needed. I, I had done. Learned to use my prosthetics full time. Got rid of a wheelchair. All that stuff. And I was like, I've done no sport. And I, I've not done any because none of it floated my boat. I used to look at it all and think I, I had that again martial artist mindset on like. I don't want to sit down and play volleyball. That's not what, you know, warriors yeah, do. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know I mean, it's all just a bit, yeah. So I just, you know, forgot about it. And then I thought, you know, I haven't done anything. I'm going to, I'm going to do sport. And that's going to be a nice way for me to celebrate 2017, uh, two, yeah, 2017, 10 years. And then I'll, I'll go on and figure out what to do the year after. Now, the Invictus Games was two years old at that point and I had seen my friends and colleagues competing winning medals you know which is great but what got me more was that when all the cameras had gone and you know the smoke and and dust and everything had settled I saw how much they'd improved in their personal life and their confidence Uh, and and all that kind of stuff so I was like right 
I'll have a go at that. You know, and I knew it was, you know, it's not Paralympic level, but I knew it was high level. It was more than, you know, county or national or whatever. So I thought I'll give that a shot, you know, not even expecting to make the team because I was in none of those circles, none of those clicks, never done a single thing before, but I applied for it and I was fortunate enough to get through, went to the trials, um, just gave it everything that I had at the trials. And then you've got to wait a couple of weeks while they go through, I think it was 700 applications for 72 places. And I uh, was lucky enough to make the team the first year round. So then I kind of sat down and thought, I better really do some training because I only wanted to do it once. My whole thing was I'm going to turn up there, I'm going to go like a maniac, I'm going to come back with a suitcase full of gold medals, drop the mic and then walk out. That, that's what I thought. When I actually started training, you know, I realised that it was actually really difficult. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, thought it, I thought all I had to do was turn up, be super fit, apply brute force and ignorance, crash people and then walk away. And then I realised actually these guys are pretty high level um, as adaptive. Do you, do you think, Mark, sorry, interrupted, do you think these guys, do you think they all try harder than like me and Ali would do because they want to prove people fucking wrong? Some do. Do you think it, it, it means so much? Some, some of them do. Some of them um, I think have the similar mindset of me where it's more of a personal growth thing. You set yourself okay. a challenge and you're like, I am going to do that. I, that okay. That's just for me. And that's why when I did it, I set myself the goal of coming back with all gold medals. I was yeah. like, that, that's my goal. That's my personal thing. And that's what I'm going to do. And so, you know, just next door in my, uh, in my garage, I would be in there at five o'clock, at least three mornings every week doing cardio on the handbike or the rowing machine. Then I'd work all day because I worked for, like I said, the Royal Marines charity. Then I would do strength and conditioning in the evening. And then on the weekends, we had to travel all over the country, uh, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, Bristol, Bath. And we'd go to like rowing camp, swimming camp, hand cycling camp. So it was a, it was a big commitment, um, mm. especially, you know, with three kids and a wife at home, a full-time job and all that. But I just thought, right, I'm going to do this, experience it, tick that box, get those medals, job done. Um, I just threw myself into it. You know, it, it didn't work out how I had hoped the first time round um, for various different reasons. But that's why I went back a second time. Mm. I came home and, and I just, I was restless and I just couldn't stomach the thought of not having the gold medals just are you um are you guys going to show the video of this as well yes yeah yeah, yeah okay yeah. so I, i'll just quickly show you this if i can yeah i don't know if you guys can see that uh-huh yeah. oh look at that nice. fuck yes that's awesome i like so, that when i came back i had my friend make that for me and he put my two silver medals in it, and he put my two bronze medals in it, but the two top slots he left empty. <laughs> and so I put that on the wall next door in front of my handbike and my rower, and every morning the second year, I would just stare at those empty slots and just hammer myself and think there's no way that I'm coming back without filling those slots. 
You know, mm. now, the, the rest of them, I couldn't, there's one, two, three, there's five more up there. I couldn't fit them in the frame. Um, All right, <laughs> fucking calm down, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole bunch sat on top of the filing cabinet. But, um, you know, that was a really good visual aid for me when I was, you know, because it's hard getting up at five in the morning when it's freezing fucking cold in the garage mm. to try and motivate yourself to do like a 40 minute hit session before work. Yeah. You know? I'm walking around on my ass everywhere. You know, my balls are dragging on the floor. It's freezing cold. <laughs> I don't want to do this. But then you look at that and you see those those gaps in the frame. And you're like, I can't, I can't go another year without filling them. So yeah, yeah. That makes it was sense. a real good visual motivator for me. So I, I did. Um, I have something similar, Mark. Where I didn't go to the Victor's Games, but um, so I failed uh, last year. I signed up for the Keltman Triathlon, which is one of the hardest iron distance triathlons on the planet. It's fucking brutal. And I failed. So I was supposed to be doing it this year. It got cancelled, so I'm doing it next year. But I've left my number. You know, you get a little sticker to put on your bike with your, your race number uh, and the Keltman thing. And I left it on the crossbar. So every time I get on that bike, I have to look at that and go, I didn't fucking finish that. And it yeah. infuriates me. Infuriates me because, you know, you could have done better. As you're saying, it's horrible to get up in the morning. It's pissing down the rain. It's dark. And you, maybe I could have went an extra mile, but yeah, that would do. So yeah. I left that on there. So every time I got on that bike, I have to look at that and go, I fucking failed. Mm-hmm. And it drives you insane. Um, so yeah, kind of similar kind of idea. But so the, the 2016, did you feel? Did you feel that you had left some like? Did did you feel like you hadn't trained as hard as you could have done, or you didn't put a hundred percent into everything, or what was, you know, what what was the you know the thing that kind of got you the most? Um, you mean why I didn't get the gold medals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? Did, was it just not quite good enough? Did you? you what was the state situation? Or was it was did the competition level surprise you? Maybe did yes, you think? Yeah, yeah. Mando, I've had the Green Beret, we can smash it, no bother, no one's fitter yeah, than yeah. Mando's. There was a bit of that, but without, I don't, I don't like talking negatively or, or saying anything to make it sound like there's excuses, but there were issues with classifications. So okay. I'm missing three limbs, you know, and basically anyone in my classification should be missing three limbs or more, and somehow people that had both their arms were getting in there and obviously that's a huge advantage and mm. afterwards yeah. it was even verified by the judges and officials that they were in the wrong race but you know there was nothing they could do after the race so I was a little bit angry you know it happened several times where yeah. I potentially should have came away with gold medals but because somebody with more limbs than me had accidentally got into the wrong race they walked away with prize. Um, yeah, I suppose it's tough, as you say, not making excuses. But I mean, that's that doesn't yeah. seem like an excuse. I think that's more a statement of fact. So, that... Is there um, is there like a obviously I know there's like you know like circulation things and that you know with you know, losing limbs. But is there like a percentage where like each limb you lose is there a percentage that your performance would drop? Kind of thing. Like so, somebody's got you know you're seeing guys with two arms are competing against you. Is there like does that make it like ten percent harder for you, or you, however you know? Is it like a way that you could kind of quantify that as like in terms of your performance versus their performance? How how much more difficult it was for you than somebody in your category with more limbs? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the actual statistics are. 
Um, but I'll give you an example. So I'm missing both my legs above the knee. Mm. For me to do anything, to stand still, to walk around, do anything, takes me between 300 and 500% more energy than it would take you. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know what the actual statistics are, but the, the thing about like disability sports is, and, and this is an example where it'd be completely fair, is if, say, you've got two blokes that are rowing, right? Mm. And they're both triple amputees. Now, I'm missing both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. Now, I could row 100% legally and legitimately against another triple amputee who's missing both his legs below the knee and mm -hmm. his arm below the elbow. So he okay. could put his prosthetic legs on. He's got two knees to drive with and two elbows. Uh... So he's got four points of contact and four points of power against my one elbow and a shoulder. Right, right, that makes sense. Yeah, a hundred times easier for him rowing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so little things like basically every joint you lose makes it harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's kind of what I was meaning. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah, it's like a completely unfair advantage that they have. Um, that's, that's over you, yeah, that's legitimate. That's legal and yeah, yeah, no qualms with that, you know. But if you've got a guy who's got two full on arms. Uh, and everyone in the race above him has got two full-on arms, then that's where he should be. Um, right, okay. But it's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So Did you ever, the, this, um... this is a, a little bit of a segue off, similar to what you're talking about, Mark, but it was in the, I think it was the Paralympics, and there was the story, did everyone hear the story about the Spanish basketball team from about 10 or 12 years ago? Because no. there was a, there was a category in the Paralympics where it was for people that had like essentially mental disabilities, but it was done on the basis of passing a test. So you had to pass a test, and if your IQ was below a certain level, you qualified at this grade of lower mental disability. So what the Spanish team did is they got all these B-level professional basketball players to essentially flunk the test. Because if you know the answer is A, you put B and it lowers your IQ. Mm -hmm. And there was all these like proper athletes and they won the gold medal and they were high-fiving each other and they were dunking on people. Like, guys are like 6'6", 220-pound athletes. But because they'd failed, failed, in inverted commas, the IQ test, yeah. they qualified for that classification against teams that have put legitimate, you know, disabled people in. And you saw them, they were dunking on them, they're high-fiving each other, they're standing there with the gold medals around their neck crying. And when it all came out afterwards, I thought, you guys must have been there knowing that you had yeah. fucking faked your way to that medal. Obviously, yeah. nothing similar to the situation you that's, were, but just uh, ridiculous level. And I was just thinking that when you were saying about the, the classifications, that it, it must be difficult to work it out. And that's obviously an extreme example, but I suppose that's how far it could go, potentially. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, these are the reasons why when people say to me, would you ever do the Paralympics? I'm like, absolutely not. I'm not going to dedicate however many years of my life to train in three times a day, six days a week to potentially mm. turn up there on the day and have somebody with two knees and two elbows race with me. Cause I've got yeah. zero chance of winning unless they're yeah. like, have a heart attack halfway through a row. I've got no chance of winning. They could basically go to sleep halfway through the race and still beat me. Mm. Um, so that's just because I'm at the far end of the spectrum though, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 How how like how much harder is it for you to recover, Mark? Like after you know you're saying you're doing your you know rowing, row sprints are horrible. I know that I know that personally. 
but you know you're talking about doing the essence S and C stuff. How, is it more difficult for an amputee to recover as well? I would assume. I don't know. Um, see, I, I took the whole the holistic approach, you know, with nutrition, rest, and everything. Yeah. Fast, ice bath, whatever I needed to do, I did to recover as quickly as possible. Um, right. Almost all the time. Yeah. I, I just know if it took me longer or what. Yeah. Just been an interesting thing. I'd like it's just one of those things where I, you know I would assume that it would, but then maybe like I'm I'm a fucking idiot, so maybe it doesn't. Like I don't know. <laughs> your body just gets used to it you know because right. in the beginning like that 300 to 500 percent more energy it takes me in the beginning i remember it was brutal when i was learning to walk it was like running a marathon every day and i was having to sleep have naps all day long but now your body gets used to it and that becomes your new baseline you know so it doesn't uh, right okay yeah that makes sense yeah yeah it's like one, it's one of those things where you know i always say if you've had a night on the piss woke up you know had a pizza and you, and you always think, how do people do this like every weekend? But if you do that every weekend, you yeah. just go, this feels normal. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those. I suppose it's one of those things. So, is there any um, is there any plans to go back to the Invictus Games, or do you think you've achieved everything you want to? Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy with what I've done. Um, I, I won't ever go back to it. I'll go back as a spectator. But mm. the, the other, this, you know, the thing is, is like. I mentioned it earlier, 700 odd people apply mm. and there are only about 68 to 70 spaces. Yeah. So I think it's a bit selfish of me to potentially take. Uh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense as well. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it's... give somebody else a, a chance to go and you know, achieve their dreams as well. Well, this isn't the Paralympics. It's not just about meadows. It's about people's personal recovery. Yeah, man. Well, if I'm yeah. to go and get glory and try and get medals and someone maybe with post-traumatic stress could turn their life around by being part of a team again and training with people and competing then i'm not going to feel very good about myself uh, by taking that spot for them so see, i would never have thought i would never have thought about that without you saying that i would I, that wouldn't have, i wouldn't have thought about that at all that's a really good uh a really good point like a really interesting point it's about it's not yeah i i never thought about that actually yeah it's about people's personal recovery rather than fucking medals and medals are just secondary i suppose yes yeah, yeah, that's a real. I would never have thought. Genuinely, would never have thought about that on my own. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, you think would you like? Would you go and like help people, mentor people, uh, like a coaching, you know, on the coaching side of things for that? Or I, know, I did do. I, I was on, you done it. I was on the ambassador program um, last year for this year's games. So this year they were supposed to be in the Hague, but obviously it's been cancelled. Um, so I spent. A week up in Leeds with the guys at the trials. I, I mentor people over the phone and stuff for the for last year, but unfortunately, um, it got cancelled. And I was looking forward to going, you know, and being in that environment mm. again, but with no pressure, you know, where I could have a beer and just relax. And do you think, um, do you think, Mark, that you can get somehow get jujitsu in there? I, I asked them. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, if there's enough, if there's enough. Uh, need for it i don't see why they couldn't that'd be a cool avenue for it that'd be yep. a, a real a real cool way to have it yeah that'd be a cool a cool place to to, to put that um gives guys some competition that'd be that'd be really cool yeah um yeah that's really something would, that... would, would, would that reignite the competitive bug then mark if they put jiu-jitsu into the invictus games would you enter that as a single event <laughs> potentially <laughs> <laughs> You see the smile there, creeping up your face as I ask the question. I know. 
it's a long old process, you know. Yeah. Like I said, and I, I think I've got everything I can from the games, so I think it'd be a bit selfish. But I'd definitely be there cheering lads on and training with them. Yeah, I think that's a, that. That'd be a really cool, uh, a really cool little little uh, project for you if you could uh, use your use your influence to try and get you get in there somehow. That'd be fucking pretty cool. Um, for a lot of people, and it you know it gives everybody something to aim for. Um, you know, amputee uh, jiu-jitsu guys, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. Um, so yeah, what? Um, now I was doing some. I was saying to Ali before we before we spoke to you. I was doing some. I've been crazy busy today, so I was looking up some stuff about you. Doing my notes earlier on. Is it? Are they, is is there a film getting made about your life? Is that is that right? Yeah. Is there? Yes, we just uh, signed the contracts actually in lockdown. Okay, so that's all going ahead, but it's based on. Uh, oh look, I just happened to have a copy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> book, man yeah. down. Um, and I'm three quarters of the way through finishing the second one now, so it's going oh, to be yeah. an amalgamation of the two. Um, and you know, I've got I've got a great team behind me. Um, yeah. You know, professionals in the industry that are doing all the behind the scenes stuff. And if I can get everything that's in here out onto here, mm. then it's going to be epic. Yeah. Now, here's, here's um, sorry, Anna, I was just going to say, here's a, a cool, um, a cool kind of segue. You know, do you find like the, you know, being creative in jiu-jitsu helps being creative in like the, the making of a film? Because, you know, I'm, I'm assuming obviously you've said you have to adapt things for jiu-jitsu. One of the things that I love about jiu-jitsu is kind of creating things and, and mentally going, if I do this or that, so is th does that help you in the creative process of you know being involved in the film? I don't know yet because we haven't done any, we haven't actually been on set because of COVID. Okay. I think what will help me is that I'm a massive movie nerd. You know, I was born in the 80s, raised in the 90s, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, Seagull, yep. Lemlock. And I just, I just love films. And, I, and I, I know what parts of all the films I've watched over the years make them good films. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. so are you, I suppose the question then, talking about 80s movies, Mark, are you going to have a training montage? You surely have to have a training <laughs> montage. Have. You have to have, right? Exactly. No, you're right. What we discussed the other day, that there's loads of really cool little things that I'd love to have in this movie. And one thing someone suggested the other day, which I'd never even considered, was having like they call it the score. So like the training montage, the soundtrack, and everything mm -hmm. recorded by the Royal Marines band. Ah, oh, oh, that's right. cool. They're the dogs bollocks. They're the best in the world. Um, and I just think that's so cool to have exactly yeah. there a training montage, right, with all the fucking orchestra and everything, you know, ramping up, bum bada bum bada bum, with but the Royal Marines band. Yeah, yeah, man, that's cool. I like that. That's a, I love that. I genuinely just got goosebumps thinking about that. Yeah, man, that's cool. I like it. Well, suppose like it's well, Mark, you can you can be actually the first person that I've ever asked this pub question to that would legitimately be able to give a real answer. So who would you want to play you in a movie of your life? <laughs> um, so I can't say. Who... No, but in a, let's go in a, the fantasy world if we have to. I don't really know. Um, who would you say? To play yourself or play, yeah. to play 
to paint myself. I yeah. mean, I mean, I mean, obviously, obviously, somebody devilishly handsome uh, with uh, with good sense of humour. Obviously, I don't know who that is. Um, <laughs> God. What about what this about the thing? So, John, sorry, John, John Krasinski. That plays Jack Ryan in the most recent Jack Ryan series that was on Amazon. Ooh, that's, that's that's a good one. I don't know who that is. John Krasinski. John Krasinski. Was, uh, his name is. He was a uh, Jim in the American Office. Yeah. Is he American though? He's yeah, American, well, he is, yeah. yeah. Because obviously you have to be American. No. This, <laughs> I think it's Great Britain. The whole the whole cast is homegrown. Okay, I'll you know, I'll have a think about that then. I went to Hollywood, yeah. I went Hollywood. Would there, <laughs> would there be, um, so would you have, well, you have to have, how would you do, like, how would the movie be run? Will it be pre and post accident? Will you have to have different people, do you know what I mean, for, to play you? How will it, like, how will, how will you play it? How will you work it? So, whoever's going to be the lead, uh-huh. they're going to be able bodied, and then they're going to have to green screen it. Ah, okay. right, okay. Right, 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 right. movie with Jake Gyllenhaal in called Stronger. Yes. Uh, I think I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's based on, he basically plays the guy that was stood next to the terrorist at the Boston Marathon bombings. Oh, okay. So they had to green screen Jake Gyllenhaal's legs off. Right. Uh, and, and to be fair, as an amputee myself, the way he moved was bang on. It was bang mm. on the way he did it. So we'd have to get someone who could, you know, has the skill to do that because I imagine it's very difficult. It would be, yeah. Yeah, they're gonna have to play a, a movie as a, a triple amputee, effectively, which is gonna be really difficult. But and what I'd love, and I've said this from day one, is in all the hospital scenes, the rehab scenes, and everything, is actually my mates. Oh, yeah, 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 that's cool. You know, actual veterans or civilians that I've met with limbs missing as the extras in the cast. You know. Yeah, I like I really like that. That's a that's a, a really cool touch, a really cool little personal touch on the thing. Yeah, I like that. Um, we, we have mentioned that a few, and you have as well, Mark. Just as as we're kind of winding through the episode, are you happy talking us through how you ended up in the situation where you ended up as a triple amputee? Because I know I listened to it on on the podcast I mentioned at the start, and it's, it's so. Something I, that, Incredible. I was, I was, I started listening to another podcast uh, when I was doing my my bike session earlier on in my little gym. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but you, it was you talking about the same thing. And I got to a part about, uh, you know, you putting your boot <laughs> with your with your foot in it with the nerve still attached. I was going, ah! <laughs> Whilst I was on my bike, and it's one of those things where you're on the bike going, "This is terrible." And then you go, "I'm such a fucking bitch." <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I kind of started listening to a podcast as well. I didn't get a chance to get to the end, but um, yeah, the story is is madness and horrifying and amazing. Oh, you know, at the same time, it's it's a you know a really an unbelievable story. So, I mean, do you remember much about it? Yeah, I remember it all. Do you remember the whole thing? Yeah, I do. those things where you you know you don't know if somebody's going to be like not remember anything or be completely conscious and. Yeah, it's a bizarre, you know. Yeah, so what, what you know, you want to talk us through that and mm-hmm. <laughs> make us uh, make us amazed. So, I guess I'll give you the the not the shortest version, but the shorter version of it. Okay. Uh, I was halfway through a tour in Afghanistan, uh, down in Helmand Province, working out of a place called Ford Opera and Base Robinson. 
And on Christmas Eve, uh, myself and a handful of my friends were given a brief to go out on a foot patrol. We'd done God knows how many of these things before. Um, and it was just really, we, we, so when you, do, when you go out on these patrols, generally you've got a mission. You know, it's like there's an enemy over there, go disrupt them. There's a weapons cache there, go blow it up or confiscate it. There's a village over there, go help them build a school, give them security, that kind of stuff. Well, this was just literally leave the rear entrance of our camp in two sections, one go north, one go south, patrol around the perimeter, meet back at the front entrance of the camp, and then finish up. So it was just an easy thing because we go out every day or every other day. We didn't really have anything to do. It was Christmas Eve. We had the helo coming in with all the Christmas cards and all that kind of stuff on. So it was just to get out, you know, keep our boots on the ground and come back in and take a couple of days off for Christmas. So we all formed up by the rear entrance of the camp. Um, we're in two sections, like I said, eight men in each section. They opened the back gate. I went north, uh, was second in command of that section. The other guys went south and went out and we patrolled for around about uh, five hours, five, five and a half hours, something like that. Now, we're now at the front entrance of camp. You know, ready to finish things down, you know, really easy, really basic, no cause for concern, no enemy in sight, none of that stuff. And my section are up on a high feature. Now, just beneath us was uh, Ford Operating Base Robertson, so we could see down onto that. And then beneath that was the other group of guys that we left with earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. So because we were up on the high ground, we could see everything around us, you know, in case the enemy came in on foot to attack. And obviously, if we did get in a fight, it's a lot easier going down a hill than it is going up. So we got tasked with giving them what we call overwatch, which basically means take up fire positions, observe them, protect them if anything happens. Then when they get back into the camp, they'll get behind the perimeter wall. They'll give us overwatch. We will come down off the high feature, back in the camp, job done. Very easy, very basic, very low-level stuff. So we got given our task in. Section commander took half of the section and he started giving them fire positions i took my half of the section and about four meters in front of us was a like a little bowl in the ground now normally what you do if you're on a patrol and you go farm and you're stopped you're obviously vulnerable so when you stop you want to get behind a wall get behind a tree a building you know something that gives you some form of cover because we're up high on this ridgeline, effectively, there was no cover. So I thought, we'll get in this bowl, get down on our stomachs, no one's going to see us. So we jump in, the lads will start taking the fire positions. I stand back, you know, do some observations, a couple last-minute checks, that kind of stuff. When everyone's happy, I start walking over towards the position that I slept with myself. And then as I went to get down onto my stomach, um, as my right knee hit the ground, I knelt on a detonated, unimprovised explosive device. Now, I do remember it all. Um, I'll talk you through that quickly. Um, so you've got to imagine, right, Afghanistan, terrain is very sandy, very dusty, very dirty. So this device explodes, and instantly there's this dust cloud created, right? So mm-hmm. temporarily, I'm blonde. I can't see anything. My adrenaline is spiked, 
you know, because I thought initially we had been attacked. So my fight or flight's kicked in. You know, I'm ready for a dust up, but I can't see anything. So I thought to myself, what I'll do is I'll wait. You know, you got to imagine like everything's going crazy, but you're trying to stay logical and, and composed inside. I'm like, right, wait for the dust to settle. Then you can see. That's step one. Look around, figure out what's going on, figure out where we've been attacked from. That's step two. Then start shooting. Step three, tactical withdrawal. Step four, everyone gets out safely. So I waited and the dust cloud got to about chest height. I looked around, you know, panicking a little bit, hoping that none of my team had been hurt or killed, but I couldn't see anybody. So I carried on waiting and then the dust cloud eventually got to about, you know, six or eight inches from the floor, hit the ground and disappeared. Now, when it disappeared, I looked down to where my legs should have been and they had been completely torn off from the knees down, um, which is very surreal. Um, anyone listening to this who's been in any sort of a car crash or whatever will will understand what I'm saying when I say that it's um, you, you sit there looking at something that's happening kind of know it's happening but it doesn't feel real mm. so there's no pain you know so I sat there kind of like looking just in disbelief like down like what am I looking at you know my, my brain couldn't I don't yeah. it and make sense of it because there was no pain either and uh, I'm looking at it and it's all this blood and claret and fluid just raining out the bottom half of my body. And probably about, it's, there's no other way your mind works. You know, like two seconds later, I'm like, my team, my team. So I, I just completely ignored that and started looking around, you know, for the rest of the team. And then I saw over my right shoulder, um, the guy in charge, uh, Corporal Sean Harrisby, like looking at me. Mm. Me and Sean went through training together in 2001. We've been friends a long time. And I kind of just looked in his eyes and saw the shock and the lack of colour in his face, which even though it, I was in that kind of state of disbelief, like not really understanding what it was I just looked at, looking at him then kind of gave me a bit of a, a confirmatory signal that something bad had happened. So I kind of I went to look back at my legs just to kind of really be like, this is happening. You need to do something about this. And as my my eyes swept across the ground, I got to about the three o'clock position, and I saw my arm just lying there in, in the in the sand. You know, it was, it was still attached to my body, but from my bicep to my wrist, the whole thing had been ripped open, and all the bone was shattered my hand was okay my thumb was a bit fucked up but the rest of my hand was okay and I, and I picked my hand up and this arm just kind of flopped from there where the elbow was and i just kind of looked i don't know why i put it in front of my face and kind of looked at it and turned it around a little bit and then i just dropped it in the sand and just just screamed like in just pure frustration you know because my mindset at that point was, what a fucking dick. Do you know what I mean? You're trained to the highest level you could be trained to, you know, in, in the regular force. You can 
fist fight, you can firefight, you can knife fight, you can do whatever you need to do toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody, you're capable, yet you're a dumbass because you just got beaten by a lump of metal in the ground. And I was so angry, I just screamed. And I was like, ah! And then I started to think to myself, I've put everyone in danger. You know, because generally what happened in this situation is if a landmine goes off, you know, and the, the enemy know that there's a, a casualty, they'll follow it up, they'll come over the hill then with the AK-47s and try and take everyone out. So mm -hmm. I'm panicking, thinking my team are going to get killed now because of me, because they're all going to be trying to help me and concentrate on me, and then they're going to potentially get killed. So, you know, I let out this scream, this little crater that we we're in. Um, I've read the report that was written after the incident, and it's now, I think it was 12 feet deep by 15 feet around. So I took my helmet off and I threw it away and I just slumped back against this big hole that we were in in the ground. And I waited to die, you know, because I knew in that situation, as counterproductive, I guess, if, as it might sound, is we're trained not to go running in to help the casualty. Mm. Risk setting up other devices. There's other landmines around there, which there were, there were six more. Someone could have come running in, set them off, and killed themselves or killed me. So I knew that no one was going to be running in quick to get me. And I looked at everything that was coming out of me, and I thought, that's it, you're done. So I just slumped against the incline, and I waited to die. Now, in the distance, I could hear this diesel engine, like, screaming, you know, in the distance. And I, I kind of knew from where I was and where the sound was coming from, that it was like a medic and that he was coming out to get me. And so I just lay there and, you know, I'm trying to communicate with my team. They're all shouting at me trying to make sure I'm not passing out. And I follow the noise and I hear it stop at the front entrance of camp while they move the gate. I hear it go down the hill. I hear it go along the dirt road. I hear it stop. And then I hear someone clambering up this high feature with all the, the rocks and everything, like, scrambling down beneath them. This medic then jumps into the crater, shoots me with some morphine to take the edge off, and then starts applying tourniquets to uh, both my legs and my arm. Now, one of the things that these guys are trained to do to keep their casualty fighting and, and conscious is to get them involved in their evacuation. So while he's tightening up the tourniquets on my leg, he, he asked me to do the one on my arm. So... I didn't really do anything, to be honest. I think I just gripped it and tried to turn it, but I wasn't really interested. Um, he got me out, pulled out this like canvas stretcher, put his arms into my armpits, and dragged me over to the stretcher. Now, that was the first time that I'd felt any pain. Up until that point, it just felt like a really intense pins and needles feeling, just throbbing in all three of my limbs. Mm. When he dragged it felt like someone had jammed a screwdriver into my kneecap and, and just started like ratchet down the screwdriver. So you know, I asked him to put me down and I looked down to my leg where the pain was coming from and coming out of it was like a thin uh, thin red piece of string or, or rope uh, covered in sand and, and dirt and everything which went into a boot. Uh, into my boot 
So again, I don't know why, but I, I grabbed the boot, picked it up. For some reason, looked inside it, and my foot was still in there. Um, I guess, you know, the weight of the foot, the weight of the boot, and the guy pulling me, dragging me, that stretched this tendon, which caused the pain. So, you know, put it on my stomach. Uh, somehow evacuated me out of there. I don't know how he did that. Uh, I had my eyes shut. Put me on the back of a vehicle um, that was waiting to evacuate me. And this vehicle starts going along the road, right? And these are not tarmac roads in Africa. They're like just, they're just potholes, you know? And we start climbing up the incline to go back to the camp. And as the driver's getting quite aggressive with it because the terrain is so shit, um, he nailed the accelerator, banked over hard one way, and the medic fell out the back. Right, and it's not like morphine at this point. So I thought funny until I went out after him. Now, as the the bottom, so like the tail, my tailbone hit the tailgate of the vehicle, the driver just turned around, reached out, grabbed whatever he could grab to hold me in, and he ended up grabbing my femur bone. Um, ah. Right. He kind of held me half in, half out of his vehicle. He made the decision to leave the medic um, because at the bottom of that hill, there were still eight men, that other section that we deployed with. They were still there, fully armed, ready to protect him. He drove me back into camp. And the last thing I remember is the, the Chinook landing and the, the heat from the exhaust, the sandstorm created from the propeller blades and then the, the noise of the tailgate dropping, which is when I blacked out and later on found out that that was me dead, effectively. Yeah. Fucking hell. <sighs> Jesus Christ. So one thing, one thing that's, a, 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 you know, when you said you, you lay back and you just kind of waited to die, at that point, are you angry? Or do you kind of make peace with the situation and go, well, this is it? Do you know what? It's, it's the weirdest thing. There was no pain, right? The sun was beating down on my face. So I just acted and pretended that I was on a beach in Spain. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what it felt the way, the way that your adrenaline kicks in, everything feels like a dream, right? Yeah. You're lying there, you're in no pain, the sun's on your face. It's actually pretty perfect. Do you know what I mean? And then I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna drift off, I'm gonna black out like I do when I go to sleep. The only difference is this time I'm not gonna wake up. And I started thinking, I'm actually like you said, I'm at peace with this because I'm gonna die doing something honorable. I'm gonna die representing my country, I'm gonna die representing the good guys, I'll come back, I'll get a hero's burial. And then when my daughter grows up, you know, she can be proud that I wasn't a waster and I died doing something worthwhile. So I was at peace with it until mm. all the medics came in and dragged me out of that place and did their thing and saved me and brought me back to life. Ah, oh, man, that's a... Uh... <sighs> like, I don't even know what you say to that. Like, I don't even yeah. know how to respond. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where you go, I fucking... Man, that's insane. That's... Uh... No, there's any sort of, like, bright light but it was certainly peaceful. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. And I wasn't, scared, 
I wasn't scared. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wasn't yeah. worried. Oh, that's crazy. It's, um, well, uh, I would like to thank you for your service. I'm extremely happy that we have uh, men like you in this country. You know, I did ask, um, I did ask uh, Gareth Timmons uh, when he was on uh, the Royal Marine. You know, I said, you know, who's who's better, our guys or the Americans? And he went, ah, oh, our guys are way better. So I was happy to hear that. I, you know, I'd heard that from friends who are you know, RAF guys and stuff, they said, yeah, our guys are way better. They just have more kit. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, extremely happy for, you know, I had uh, an uncle uh, who was, oh, I can't even tell you, he was, uh, he was a, an army guy and a cousin who was bomb disposal. Um, he's out now. Uh, but, yeah, so, you know, some military family. So, um, um, so I was always... Proper military. My granddad was 28 years in the Royal Marines from the Second World War, left as a WO2 colour sergeant. Yeah. Um, and I went down to Limston when I was 18 and my knees fell apart and never quite made it all the way through. But yeah, it's, uh, hearing stories like that, man, that's intense. Uh, yeah, it is. So thank you very much for your service, Mark. Uh, yep. It's uh, uh, an honour to speak to, to yourself. And uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be you know looking out for your uh, for everything that you're doing coming forward, the film and stuff. And um, yeah, uh, well, one thing that Ali Ali I didn't realize this until beforehand. Ali is wearing one of your uh, one of your one of your hoodies. So I am. Uh, where where do you get those actually? I was going to say. Where can we do it? And we'll put it on the show notes as well, Mark. So we'll do that. Where's your website? And where can people find out more about you and on your social media? So the website is just markumrod.com. There's a little shop section okay. on there. And okay. all my social media is just at Mark uh, and so, Yeah, so on your website, um, do, you, do you sell your books on there? The, the Man yes. Down book? Do you sell those? Cool. I'll grab... Um, yeah, I'll grab a T-shirt and grab grab your book as well. And um, yeah, actually, do you where, where did the books come from? Did they come from... Do you have a, a fat feed? Could you... Could you sign one for me? Would that be something that you could do? They're all they're all signed. I signed them all and dropped them off to my mate. Oh, you've you've all signed them. Fuck yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll 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 get one of those and I'll get one of your uh, t-shirts or hoodies or, or something or both or whatever. And um, yeah, I didn't realize that you had some merch. So I always like to buy uh, UK military merch. You know, I always buy uh, what's the name of the the coffee company? Um, Contact. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, so I buy their buy their coffee and stuff. So I like to support um, UK military stuff. So um, I'll, I'll go and grab some of that stuff. And uh, yeah, like I say, you also have the best hashtag sticker when the hoodie came through. Your hashtag no limbits. Oh yeah, <laughs> no limbits. That made me laugh no end. Oh, man, <laughs> that's that's good. Absolutely tremendous. It was supposed to be. The B is supposed to be silent on it. So it's supposed to be a play on words that says no. It's, it's no limits, but the B. Yeah, yeah I just. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some people understand it, others don't. Yeah. That's a bit Makes of a <laughs> no, I, I loved it. I loved it. It was no limits and also no limbits. Yeah, played yeah. Genius. And I can, Funny. as I say, just for the camera, <laughs> no limit hoodie. They're a tremendous. Awesome. They're a yeah. Quality, yeah. quality merchandise. Thank you. Awesome. Well, We've just done about 70 minutes there, Mark, so we've taken up more than your time. So we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, as I say, we'll add in your your uh, social media and your website onto our show notes, try and get some bodies sent your way. But, 
Mark Ormond, thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank you, lads. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Episode 39, done and dusted. The Silly Goose Gang Podcast. <laughs>